Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, training venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer. This podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my good friend, Sasha Gavali, Outreach Officer at Kaiko. Sasha, it's great to have you on. Great to be here today. So before we kind of get started in, into you know what Kaiko is, what you do in the space, you know I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you did before crypto and what brought you into the space initially. Yeah, sure. So the um, um, I'm actually an engineer by training. I studied mechanical and industrial engineering, and then I went into the aerospace industry. I was passionate about aircraft and airplanes since uh, my early childhood, and so I was doing experiments for space shuttles and numerical simulations for commercial uh, commercial aviation. Um, and I started getting into the uh, idea of crypto through uh, a podcast in uh, internet security and computer security. And uh, uh, when I heard about Bitcoin, it completely echoed the uh, history of my family, you know, having to move from one country to another. And I really saw a huge use case and the ability to have a store of value that did not depend on the government. And so to me, that was really big. That was back in uh, I don't remember the first time I heard about it. I think it was around 2013, 2012. Uh, and then I got into doing a bit of mining around 20, end of 2013, 2014. Um, at that time, it was already too late for me to mine Bitcoin on my small laptop. So I was mining actually Dogecoin. I think I still have the private key somewhere. <laughs> I know you mentioned that to me. You got Sasha's a Dogecoin well, but he's lost his private keys. Oh, no, I don't think I'm a whale. I don't rem- even remember how many I managed to mine. But um, actually, after a short while, I just figured out um, it wasn't economical to do that. And I was just pulling more electricity than and paying. My parents were paying more for the electricity bill than what it was worth at that time. So you weren't one of the MIT kids that was, you know, plugging in, uh, you know, mining equipment into your dorm room? No, I was to well i didn't have a dorm room because i was uh, at that time i was uh, living at at my parents uh, in paris <laughs> so my parents were paying for the electricity and uh, and actually in my dorm room when i was at you know in the in in the undergrad the internet connection was not stable enough to do anything really <laughs> yeah it's it's funny i still remember all the stories about like you know people at their universities just just running up these ridiculous electricity bills they didn't have to pay because electricity was you know part of your uh you know part of your bill and then getting caught by school administration for you know having you know 10 miners in their uh in their dorm room which was quite funny it's a pretty economical way to mine crypto right just you're not the one who pays the electricity bill yeah but you know i i tried to be as ethical as possible and so i've never even considering doing it. Um, but it, it was very interesting to get into this. And then soon, you know, I refactored all that compute power into more like um, computer simulations. I was at, at that time, I was actually calculating the flow past the cylinder. And you can see very nice instabilities that go in the flow and vortices that, that uh, shed from the, from the cylinder. So I, was, uh, I thought that was a bit more productive at the time. And um, 
and then clearly I also had signed to uh, when I was an undergrad and it was like, hey, how are you going to build your career? Um, maybe you should think of a proper job and not something which is borderline illegal. Uh, so that's that's also how I I kept moving to aerospace, and then uh, I did a PhD in in turbulence. Uh, so kept the numerical simulations of then not um, cylinders, but more trying to see what goes on around an aircraft when it flies, and trying to make them more efficient. And uh, really, the way I got in uh, back into crypto was through entrepreneurship. Uh, so at the end of my PhD, I was starting to work on AI assistance for improving the the way we design complex systems. Uh, and I realized how little I knew about finance, about how do you fund a project and how do you uh, do investors make decisions? And that's really the loophole that, that got me back into, um, uh, into finance, investing, and then I went to business school uh, to learn about that. And you know, being at MIT for, for a bit, uh, <laughs> I started with the AI thread, but quickly I fell into the, the rabbit hole on the, on the crypto side. Yeah, so you've done some research for you know the MIT Sloan Entrepreneurship Lab, as you mentioned, R3, and Fidelity on digital currency, including uh, both the supply chain use case for blockchain, as well as the economics of mining Bitcoin. Can you give us a bit more background on the work that you, uh, that you did um, you know, th- those, l- those last few years or, or, or in, the, in the previous few years at those different places? Yes, and the uh, so the the project we had with Authory was incredibly interesting. It was really about how do you how can you leverage blockchain for the supply chain industry, and you know more broadly, we also looked at uh, pharmaceutical supply chain and trying to see how blockchain could interact in the future of that space. And back back at that time, the narrative was always you know the the first question people would ask you about blockchain was, well, why do I need blockchain for? And every time you had to give big justifications about, you know, the edge, the technological edge that blockchain would be bringing and why you wouldn't be able to do it with current technologies. And what we ended up finding was, well, a lot of this, you can do it with current technologies is cryptography plus. And those are technologies that we already know. The the big value proposition for the traceability and everything and, and the, the big finding at, at that time, which I think now is getting more... Um, agreed upon is is the word blockchain itself it actually acts as a catalyst that drives investment into the space in order to give the means to upgrade antiquated systems and I think that's really what's unraveling right now um, then the the other project with uh, on the um, economics of mining that was clearly you know what attracted me to that project and was really great to work with Vitality and the Media Lab. Uh, MIT Media Labs Digital Currency Initiative uh, uh, on this, and it clearly brought me back six, seven years before <laughs> when uh, when I was mining Dotcom on my laptop, and I retook all those questions. You know how how much money am I making by mining? Should I just buy it on an exchange? What are the incentives for miners to do that? What are the risks they're taking? And another thing that we outlined at the time was. Uh, the very the the acute the acute need for those miners to have instruments that they can use to hedge their risks and trying to think you know what the role of a miner is um, are they here to take market risk with fluctuations uh, in the Bitcoin price or fluctuations in the total hash rate I don't think so and and so how do we provide them the means to hedge those risks that 
other people who are take or playing this role can take this risk and take it off the plate for them. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, you know, thought process and not something that I really, you know, dove into too much. But the idea of I think a lot of times we think of miners as speculators, but did they really need to be speculators? Or can you just run a business as a miner, you know, kind of agnostic to the price? Uh, obviously, you know, you know, if you're mining and, and the price of Bitcoin is $2,000 and the hash rate is what it is today, you're not going to be making money. But I mean, can you operate agnostic to the price, I think is quite interesting. Yeah. And and it's it's all about, you know, how do you get to know those risks and separate them so that different people can wrap their minds around them. Uh, but what we ended up writing on uh, was the, uh, we, we did a very simple model of, you know, what the revenue streams, the cost of those miners are, and how they they looked over time and trying to see if there were like clear uh, profitability patterns or how much an average miner would be making. The main out- outcome was the average miner is not making profit, you know, and like what many people could have thought intuitively at the time, it's actually quite competitive. And when the, and, and, and what, what year did you do this research and when was this? Uh, so we started in 2018 at the end of 2018 and uh, finished, in May 2019. Got it. And and the, the you know, that's um, basically, if you have an edge, yes, you're making profits. But if you don't, whether you have, uh, maybe you, you're not paying for electricity, that's one thing, but otherwise you're not really making profits. And, and then it's not necessarily rational. Then it's maybe you're making a bet on the market. Maybe it's another way uh, to get crypto because you, maybe you don't want this you know, you don't want to go through a centralized exchange. You don't want to go through KYC processes. There are maybe other ways that that can explain, but the uh, the public narrative that you know you just plug in a machine and make money is clearly off, and it was already off in 20, 2014, and even more so today. And also, you know, on the on the equipment side, uh, you have the bitmains of the world who have huge power and in, in how they're providing the uh, ASIC miners. So it's a, it's a fascinating and a very interesting space. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, the bigger challenges as well is the fact that, you know, the differences in mining equipment, right? If somebody has a last gen miner, right? And Bitmain or another, you know, mining company comes out with something that's, that's newer generation, right? You know, and, and it's, it's working 20 or 30% more efficiently. You're crushing, yep. you know, you're crushing the other miner. And, and one thing that we've seen is, um, you know, the, the, the more recent, you know, struggles of Bitmain, a lot of which have been, co- you know, public, um, you know, with the two founders fighting with Bitmain struggling to, uh, you know, send out mining equipment. And I think you're right that mining isn't as profitable as it, it was made out to be. I mean, sh- surely anybody who is mining Bitcoin in 2011, 2012, 2013 is, is you know, in a, in a really good place. But I think, you know, now, you know, that that's that's just not the case anymore. And And, and so are there any findings that you found around things like, you know, certain potentially geographies where the economic, you know, like, like locations where the economics were better than one another. I mean, you know, benefits of scale. Was, was there any, anything specific that you found there? Or was this more yeah. just over, yes. overarching research? Yeah. So there, there were, there were a couple of things. And I mean, it is profitable when, when you have access to very cheap electricity. So usually what, what those miners do is they act as a utility. So they pay something between two to two, two, three cents a kilowatt hour. 
And this is not what you can do as a, you know, as, as a retail person in your, in your dorm room, right? So there you can have some profitability. Then there is uh, every, every, every once in a while when there is a company that had bought some miners that goes bankrupt, you can buy some of those uh, mining devices at a discount. That's another way. Um, and there, there are multiple reports that also were published on this. There's uh, one that came up recently by BitUda. Uh, there's the great one by CoinShares too, on the, that, where they show that actually a lot of electricity being used is renewable. Um, for what reason? Well, because it, you, you can think of this also as a way of using electricity that sits somewhere that can be produced but cannot be used. And because electricity is very hard to transport, if you can put something that actually uses it and monetize it, well, then there are incent- incentives to be uh, to be gained there. And some miners actually, at the beginning, got paid to mine just because they were helping the electricity providers using this unused electricity. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I'd love to go down the rabbit, you know, this rabbit hole even more. But I think we got a lot of other things to cover. I mean, one other interesting thing, you know, more more recently that, you know, has been talked about a bit is just the the wet season in China um, and how that impacts, you know, miners there and, you know, results in some miners having to go offline and, you know, hash rate dropping and it becoming, you know, cheaper and more inexpensive to mine. I mean, there's just there are so many more forces at play now than I think there were a few years ago. Also governmental um, forces, you know, I think it. I'd be interested <laughs> to 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 know more. Of it. I mean, it's obviously very secretive, but even as a government, I think you you have some incentives to look at this. Yeah, I mean, you know, even even you know, in upstate New York, right, with you know companies in Montreal coming down to Plattsburgh to mine or going up into Canada. I mean, there's it is it's 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 crazy how cryptos become such a big industry that something like mining, you know, is just totally different than something like trading that's just totally yeah. different than than something like developing a protocol i mean you know we're starting to see a real you know to- total industry uh you know develop around crypto and it and there's even these subtech i mean mining in and of itself is a massive operation i mean there's you know some interesting you know things that i've seen you know more recently like you know can you take you know mining equipment as collateral and make short term loans to miners because one of the biggest challenges is is that you know at the end of each month as a miner, you have a big electricity bill to pay, right? But if yep. the price of you know Bitcoin drops by too much, maybe you don't want to sell your Bitcoin because you're going to be selling at a loss and losing money. So can you put your mining equipment up as collateral? And I think there's just, you know, so we're, I mean, we're just at the beginning, right? In, in terms of, yep. you know, the, these, you know, kind of unique developments I think we'll have to see around yeah. mining. And this is where derivatives are, can be quite useful. Certainly, certainly, especially as it comes to hedging risk. Uh, and, and that's something that we hear from our hedge fund clients as well, that they think they're, you know, that that there are patterns that they're seeing in derivatives trading um, that 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 appears as if it may be for miners. Mm-hmm. So now let's go into, you know, what are you doing today? So what is Kaiko? You know, what types of clients do you service? And, you know, when do you join the firm? And, and what have you seen since you since you got there? Yeah, so um, so basically, uh, I followed the you know entrepreneurial thread and uh, started a uh, started a venture in the financial inclusion. Um, then after a t- some time, uh, moved to something else. And right at that time, uh, Kaiko was uh, closing a seed round and looking to expand and in, in, into the US. So that's where I came into the picture. Um, what we do at Kaiko is we're basically a crypto market data provider, and not you know not. Data provider in the Bloomberg-like 
uh, terminal fashion where we have a user interface. And instead of that, we put all of uh, our efforts into developing more enterprise data infrastructure. So instead of developing UIs and um, uh, user interfaces, we put everything into the infrastructure and the backend and having a robust data product. What we do is we collect, normalize, store, and then we redistribute all the market data from all the main crypto exchanges. And we go down to the highest granularity of the data that you can find. So both on the tick-by-tick trade data, and uh, now we also have L3 order book data. So you can look at all the transactions that take place on those exchanges, uh, as well as all the limit orders of people who are willing and the prices at which they're willing to execute. So what are what are the different use cases for market data and the, the different types of clients that you service? Yeah, the the range is quite broad because at the end of the day, anyone who needs a price needs market data. So we go from custodians, uh, wallets, which need price feeds. Obviously, you know, if you know want to know how many, how much your uh, assets are worth, uh, to asset managers, researchers, academics, um, really anyone who needs the market data to study, be it the market structure, um, execution costs, you know what the uh, liquidity looks like and we have a bunch of metrics especially tuned for that and so you know you've been you've been at kaiko uh, you know f- i think over, for over a year already um and so what has changed since you joined the firm or are you you know are you seeing any sorts of differences in terms of the clients that you're serving um you know are you are you you guys seeing inbound from different clients you know are you seeing that one market tends to be for performing better than others in terms of customers. Are there any trends that you've noticed that are, um, you know, kind of stand out? Yeah, apart from COVID, uh, I think the biggest change I've seen is uh, the people I interact with usually are getting more and more educated about the space. So there are a lot of basics that you don't have to explain anymore. You know, you don't start the conversations anymore by what Bitcoin is. Um, so th- th- I think that's very en- encouraging and and, uh, and good to see. The other big thing that we've seen, especially this year, is the growth of the derivative space, and it's been taking more and more importance with you know growing institutional interest. And it's crucial, as we mentioned, not just for the miners, but for any for all the market participants to be able to hedge their bets and efficiently incorporate the information into the market. And so. One of the things you've recently been doing is is research on exchange infrastructure. Can you tell us a bit about the research that you're doing? Yeah, that was a very uh, uh, exciting one because it's trying, you know, identifying from the public market data, from what you see for coming out of the exchange, identifying things of the underlying infrastructure. And, you know, you have to bear in mind when those exchanges launched and just as any fast-paced startup, uh, you have to launch your product, and at the beginning, you you want to make sure you're going to have traction. So you don't have all infinite resources to make the best platform ever. So the way the way it goes is you you launch um, a platform, and then you iterate, and periodically you have upgrades of the trading systems. What you do by upgrading a trading system is usually you try to be able to process more trades per second. And, and you hope that it's going to be able to improve the liquidity and, and, uh, and improve the overall experience and market and pricing discovery uh, mechanisms of the, of the marketplace. So we partnered with one exchange and, and we looked at the tick-by-tick trade data and looked at how this changed over time. And 
what was fascinating is not only were we able to identify the day on which they upgraded the the infrastructure, we could even go down to the hour at which they basically flipped the switch and said, okay, we're going from uh, this matching engine to this matching engine. And that, that's I, super interesting. Now continue, please. Yeah, and, and by, by looking at the month before and after the upgrade, uh, what's really tough is everything is correlated to the market. So we had to find to come up with a way uh, to try and compare the exchange relative to you know a basket of other exchanges to ha- to try and get rid of this uh, market component. Uh, and what what I was actually um, interesting to see is uh, when you compare the months before the upgrade to after the upgrade, market changes were incorporated much faster into the into the prices. And so if you looked at returns, the correlation, uh, the lack correlation between trades was reduced on short timescales. Yeah, so that that's super interesting. And, and and how do you, you know, what impact, you know, broadly um, do, does an upgrade of exchange infrastructure have on the market, both at, at a retail point of view, uh, as well as at an institutional point of view, and potentially even a regulatory point of view? So it's uh, on the liquidity side, it's very hard to quantify because there are so many other things that impact liquidity and, and impact the markets in general. But, you know, I think it's about having a robust infrastructure behind it. And that's that's exactly what the, the entire crypto ecosystem has been building. Um, as far as regulations are concerned, I don't know if they're taking into account you know, auditability um, uh, of those systems. I, I guess for the biggest exchanges and most uh, reputable places, I guess that was already part of the of the concerns when they initially designed their matching engines. Yeah, and so so one thing you just brought up was was liquidity. So how has liquidity in the crypto space evolved over the last few years? And and you mentioned earlier that derivatives exchanges are starting to take off. So are you seeing more liquidity on derivative exchanges or on spot markets at this point? So if you look at volumes, uh, or or even if you look at spreads, actually the the um, um, the top instruments where you see a lot of liquidity, um, what was that? I looked at this over the month of July, I think, and on some exchanges, you look at futures uh, with recent expiries. Those have their tightest relative spreads. And then you have uh, you know, all the perpetual futures or swaps, uh, spot markets, and obviously Bitcoin goes to the top and then you get Ethereum and, and the, the smaller the coin, the lower the liquidity. Uh, overall, the, the liquidity has improved quite a lot, uh, especially since the bear market, as you can imagine. And uh, the uh, the depth that's sitting on the order book is is actually surprisingly more important relative to the what's called the um, latent liquidity. And it's you know it's still not a very quantitative statement, but uh, uh, even in, on traditional markets, you have the concept of what's called latent liquidity. It's the fact that you have what is being expressed on the order book, which is public and that anyone can see, but when they have access to the exchange or if they go through our services to look at the order book. Um, And you have all the latent liquidity of all those people who have not placed those limit orders, but who would be willing to trade. And on traditional markets, um, usually those ratios are, are quite low. As in, there is little information available from the order books. Now there are some some uh, studies that were, were done a few, a few years ago on the um, 
on crypto that showed that actually it's, it seems the uh, there is more information on the order book than, than what you think relative to traditional markets. And that's also why uh, we've been collecting order book snapshots since our very early days at Geico. And, and I think this difference is quite interesting because often people say, well, there's not much liquidity. But in a sense, the relative liquidity compared to the total you know, willingness to trade um, is, is actually high. I think that's, that's an interesting way of looking at things. So, so, I mean, I guess the point you're making is that the, the people are more willing to place a trade, a trade in the space, as in, you know, the, the market depth that you're seeing is, is, is more likely to come to fruition within crypto than it would be in traditional markets. Is that kind of the overarching thought? I think that's part of, part of this, part also of the uh, lower inter, uh, intermediation. And uh, if you now, if you look at the average size of the of the order of the limit orders that are placed, there it's actually going down uh, uh, as we go. And so that goes in line with you know smart order routing platforms becoming more uh, more used and more proficient into splitting the uh, the orders into smaller orders in order to reduce the market impact. Do you think it also may have to do with more retail interest, or do you think it's more institutions, you know, becoming smarter with how they're trading? Well, that's it's a bit difficult to quant- to really know that because of what's called. Well, you know, when you place an order on a, on an exchange, it's called actually a meta order because that's not publicly available. The exchange knows the total amount of the trade you've placed, right? But then you only see the trades that go out of the order book, right? That makes sense. Uh, and and uh, I, th- it's it's hard to tell. I think there are different ecologies of exchanges, and different exchanges have different types of clients and customers. Uh, so right. yeah. So have you have you seen any tr- any trends across those different types of exchanges? Like you know, I, I assume that you know, like in in LMAX Digital, right, yeah. or or a Coinbase, you know, Pro or. You know, you know, these are more institutional focused exchanges versus just like a regular Coinbase or a Bittrex would be more retail. So are there any trends that you've seen across different types of exchanges that would suggest one activity or another? Yeah, totally. If you look at the uh, average order size, it's it's larger on LMAX and it's going to be smaller on the exchanges like Binance. I, I mean, more along the lines of are you seeing increased activity on one type of exchange versus the other? Are you are you seeing that retail focused exchanges seem to be taking off? I mean, one thing that I, I heard that was interesting is we had um, Philip Gradwell, who's a chief economist at Chainalysis, uh, come on the podcast, and they've been doing some research on the geography of crypto uh, flows and seeing that there's a lot more activity in Western trading hours than there was earlier. Uh, you know, the, the majority of trading is, is done seemingly or, or movements of Bitcoin is done on Eastern hours, right, in Asia. Um, but it seems like there's a, they, they think there's a flow of about $500 million worth of uh, crypto out West. And they're seeing that that trading is taking place on more spot exchanges, um, not spot exchanges, sorry. They're, they're seeing that that's more crypto to fiat. Uh, then crypto to USDT, for example, which they think could be, you know, either a combination of increased retail activity, but but they think likely, you know, it, it could also be, you know, regulated institutions that are trading, you know, from fiat into into digital assets. So are you seeing any any types of trends like that, you know, across you know different time zones or different types of exchanges, or, or not something that you guys have really dove into too much yet? 
Uh, I actually uh, gave a talk about that, uh, about those uh, time of the day, day of the week aspects of liquidity at the uh, Ethereum community conference and uh, just before COVID hit. <laughs> uh, and, and yes, you're, you're seeing that, you know, this kind of, it's, it's hard to get statistical conversions of those. And, uh, and you know, there, there are market strong market events that can impact those. And so saying, okay, it's really statistically significant sometimes doesn't even make sense. Um, but it's 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 clear there are there may be some patterns, and actually we're trying to incorporate that into our um, uh, weekly uh, interactive fact sheet, where where we want to incorporate this kind of statistics uh, to help market participants look at what's going on. And that being said, I think yeah, I think uh, institutional trading is 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 increasing in volume, and the. Um, uh, especially recently, I've heard the the CME has had a lot more volume going on uh, on their option market. And so, I know that you mentioned liquidity is is you know is is more than just you know what the trading volume looks like on an exchange. And and I know this is a is a a difficult question. So maybe I'll kind of rephrase what I was wanted to ask before. But how like you know when you look at crypto markets, um. What do you define as a market that's liquid? Um, like, would you say that Bitcoin markets are liquid on individual exchanges? Would you say that some altcoin markets are liquid, or would you say that by by placing trades through things like smart order routers, there there are a number of of liquid markets? I mean, how do you like define liquidity in the space and what actually is liquid? Yeah, I think that's a <laughs> it's a very it's a very good question. And I mean, what what is liquidity? It's the ability for someone who comes to be able to sell or buy straight, you know, uh, almost instantaneously. And often when you don't have enough liquidity, you have what's called the liquidity premium. So you have to pay more, sell for less um, because uh, uh, because of that. And um, the, the one big thing that's going on in crypto is you don't have much intermediation. So if you can go on an exchange and place a... a a huge market order, it's going to move the market. Uh, now, would you have been able to? Would you have done that in a traditional space? Maybe not. I, th- I don't think you. You know, I think your broker would have told you no, <laughs> or like there would have been some in so- some sort of intermediary that would have been in the middle. And also think about the fact that if you're somebody who got into Bitcoin when it was at ten dollars, and now you just want to get out a few, a couple of millions. You know, getting out ten million dollars is going to change your life. And if you're taking out ten million dollars instead of eleven million dollars, you don't necessarily care that much. Um, it's not very rational, to be honest. I mean, from a market efficiency. Well, and I think I think it makes sense, right? And I, I think that a lot of people in crypto are are that that made money, especially the early people, are native. They started in crypto, right? So they may not be used to, you know, these things that we're talking about, like prime brokerage and, and smart order routing and all these different ways of, of routing in order to get best price execution. So I think a lot of it is probably just, you know, people are not trying to do anything, you know, to harm the market, right? They just don't know better. Yeah, it, it, totally. And it's and they have different uh, incentives, different objectives. And uh, but the when it becomes difficult is when you have all the liquid, well, the uh, leverage effects and the, the derivatives and all the liquidation that the automatic liquidation that can take place in the market. 
And you know, by a, a you can have unintended consequences by moving the market. Because also, when you think of the role of a market maker, that's the big you know the big risks that a market maker is exposed to is uh, inf- informed trade. Somebody who knows better what the fundamental value or you know the 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 recent information that is yet to be incorporated into the price. And you can kill a market maker if you have this information because they're not going to be able to be on both sides uh, of, of, of the trade and the price is going to change and they won't be able to keep in their inventory to zero. Right. And so, and so like, when looking at the market, right, it, it, you know, what do you do? You know, like, one thing that I always struggle with, right, is, you know, we, we as a data provider support a, a, a large number of assets, right? We support in the, in the, in the hundreds. But I, but I always struggle with trying to understand what people can actually trade. Like what a retail user can trade is clearly different than what an institution can trade is clearly different than what like a pension could trade, right? Like what a hedge fund can trade, right? A small crypto native hedge fund is a lot different than what a traditional hedge fund that's allocating $100 million to crypto can trade, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you're a $20 million fund, right? And you're actively trading, I mean, realistically, how far down the list of tokens do you think these funds can go? <laughs> well, um, I guess it depends on your investment thesis on on the one hand, and it's because uh, it, the further you go down the list, potentially if you have any kind of information or any, uh, you know, it, it's about getting the black swan that's going to get you incredible returns, and it's exactly what what went on with the the ICO craze with the. Uh, uh, to some extent, what's going on right now in the DeFi space, where everybody is trying to look for, you know, those coins that are worth almost nothing right now, and that could be uh, that could go 10x in a very short amount of time. Uh, so the in the the question is, you know, in, on traditional markets, th- th- that happened with public companies and you know people getting to the stock markets, and regulators have been there to you know. Now, if, if you depending, if you put a lot of, of money into this, there depending on the instrument, you have to be an accredited investor. Um, and where the limit, the the line is drawn uh, in the crypto space is a bit more blurry. And it's 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 going to be interesting to see how how this is going to evolve, how what role regulators will play in there. Um, and it's it's a really hard question because at the same, you you do want people to have access. To those markets and democratize the access to those markets, but to what what risk are you willing to take? And but for the, for them that they shouldn't be bearing, and it's and it's not just crypto. When you look at what happened with Robinhood, it's a same story. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, and, and one of the things that you know you see with these with these altcoins is you know. Somebody can place a ten thousand dollar trade on a spot exchange with something two hundred and fifty down the list, right? And that ten thousand dollar can trade can move the price by fifteen percent, right? So the risk that you're exposed to entering positions of those coins is just you know one that the price can crash on almost no volume, but two that you know you can't you may not even be able to get out of the position, um, which which is certainly a challenge. So so I mean beyond that, you know what what are the other challenges that you think lack of of crypto liquidity brings to the market and you know how how do you think those challenges are being addressed or, or will be addressed in the future? Yeah, I think one other interesting uh, challenge is how the um, how you design the insa- the incentives of market makers. 
because it's it's one thing to have depth on the order book, but then it's very easy and quick to withdraw that depth from the order book. You just cancel your limit orders. And so the question is, if you actually have orders sitting on the order book, you're exposed to, you know, if the market changes rapidly and and somehow there's information that's that's coming that is going to move the price in, in one direction or another and that you're not prepared to handle that, uh, you can get impacted and, at the same time, market makers are being incentivized to narrow down the spreads because if you have a small spread, it means that it's uh, cheaper for you to execute bigger bigger orders. And so it really drives adoption of the exchanges. So exchanges have incentives to bring those market makers um, on, on, on their exchange and on, on their platforms. And we actually track those metrics and you can see um, on some exchanges, the you, you look at, we look at the... Uh, what we call this sort of pseudo slippage of basically by how much you would move the price by placing a 50k order or like a 100k order and what you see is when market maker go come in uh, this cost decreases so there is a real impact of that but but if you, you um, the market maker is taking some sort of is taking some risk it's not many people see market makers as uh, you're just, you know, buying low and selling high. It's it's not as simple because price prices fluctuate. So you, you really bear what's called the adverse selection risk that is that somebody else actually has more information than you do about the price, and that's what's baked into the into the spread. Now exchanges are subsidizing the market market makers to maintain narrow spreads. So I don't know. Is it are exchanges paying for that risk uh who is paying for that risk that's at the and end of something the day, that's a something else that's interesting to keep in mind is the fact that they're actually market makers for tokens right token projects are paying market makers to provide liquidity on certain exchanges particularly around specific events like you know i'm not calling out specific market makers but there are market makers that are getting paid 10 or fifteen thousand dollars a month buy specific token projects to provide liquidity on specific <laughs> exchanges, as well as a, a, a percentage of the increase in price. You know, a, a token project can lend a, a market maker a million dollars worth of their native token, pay them 15 grand a month and let them keep 20% of the you know increase of price in the token by providing liquidity. So, you know, yeah. one of the interesting, I guess, dynamics is that you obviously have market makers that are being incentivized by exchanges, mm-hmm. but you also have market makers that are being incentivized by tokens and are also being given some level of inside information, right? Knowing that yep. an exchange listing is going to, you know, be coming up on on Coinbase or Binance or Bittrex or wherever else it is, and knowing that I need to be ready to provide liquidity there as soon as that listing happens. Yep. Um, and that's kind of an interesting dynamic that I don't think exists within other markets, you know, like it does within crypto. Yeah, and also because, in a, and that's back to the incentives that you give to market makers, you know, what is the exact agreement? You don't you can't really know that. But, um, for example, it's different if you have to enforce like a, a certain spread or a, th- a certain depth uh, in the order book for uh, X percent of the time rather than all the time. Because what that means is if there is a big market event, you can just pull out. And so suddenly the liquidity that you thought was on the order book suddenly disappears. Yeah, no, that makes it, it makes sense. It's, 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 it's certainly an interesting dynamic and, um, you know, definitely interesting, you know, to see, you know, 
um, that that's something you guys are focused on and, and something that you guys are trying to measure, right, is is the impact of like, you know, what if the market maker pulls, right? You know, what happens? And, you know, it'd be interesting to see if that's something that you could uh, even alert clients on that, like, hey, it looks like there's no longer, you know, this, this I guess, liquidity that exists on this exchange. And I think that would probably be reflected in a lot of the metrics that you guys have as well for, for estimated slippage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, now on to the, 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 the big trend of, the, of the, the day, the week, the month in crypto, maybe even the year is, is DeFi. Um, so, you know, I'd love to hear your, your views on what is going on in the DeFi market. But, you know, more specifically, you know, given what you're doing as a, you know, as a market data provider, what role you think that Uniswap uh, plays in liquidity provision? Yeah, I'm a true believer that interoperability is key. It's very challenging from a security perspective um, because you know the more the more interoperable the the more the, the the larger the surface of attack is. But sure, each project will have to be vetted progressively. There's going to be uh, due diligence, and you're going to have to test the security of it, of, it, of each project, and then people will get more comfortable uh, using them. But it it is essential if we want to build. DeFi collectively rather than adversely and have people work together and not rather than trying to reinvent the wheel each on our side. So I I, I think progressively you'll have different projects that focus on separate use cases and having them interact together is really key to have the whole system work together. And the uh, on the role of Uniswap, it's fascinating. And, you know, to me, Uniswap is playing sort of the role of when we went from uh, dedicated market makers uh, to opening market making to anyone. And now with a two-sided limit order book system, anyone can be a market maker. And there's no no more, you know, the market maker with a clearing house. And it's, it's no more a dedicated role. And now Uniswap is actually opening this to um, anyone to be a provider of liquidity. Uh, in a decentralized fashion, so it's it's really fascinating, and uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. It, it, the leverage aspect uh, can be a bit boring in in all the side um, uh, contracts that you can build around it, but it's it's uh, I, th- I think it's it's definitely helping adoption right now. And do you think that the the DeFi is is bringing new people into crypto? Do you think it is? you know, energizing the existing crypto base? Do you think it's re-energizing people that were previously in crypto? I mean, what do you think the the impact of this is going to be on the market? And do you see, you know, some of this DeFi mania, you know, spilling back over into other coins as well and into other sectors of, of crypto? Well, I think sadly, you know, as all the, with all the bull runs, it's attracting a lot of greedy people who just are not really, um, but it, it also has positive side, side effects. And I think it's, driving a lot of interest around um, really getting into understanding those protocols, how they work, uh, going and read the, the the white papers to try and understand what has been going on because it's everything is moving so fast. It's really hard to, uh, to keep track of what has been going on. So I think it, it does provide incentives for uh, people to invest also their human capital into the space and start building things around. And so I think you kind of hit on it earlier, but what 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 to you are the biggest risks of of DeFi for DeFi itself, but then also for the crypto space more broadly? 
Um, biggest risks, I mean, there is always the security risk. Um, at what point are we comfortable enough with the uh, um, auditing of, of the different protocols? And how, you know, how flexible, how agile are we at withdrawing funds from those projects when a vulnerability is identified? And we, we've seen what happened recently with the uh, um, with YAM, you know, like the founders uh, of the project were quite clear. It hasn't been audited and yet you had hundreds of millions of dollars that were poured into it. And when people tried to get their money out, like fees on Ethereum exploded. So also getting the, the avenues of, okay, well, if there is something that happens when the building is, in, is on fire, how do you get people out? And that's, that's I think, is going to be a, a big issue to be uh, um, to be answered in, in the coming month. And I think you hit on you know something else in there. Just just quickly mention it, but 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 gas fees, right? I yeah. think is also just a, a big challenge, right? You know, people can't be paying thirty bucks to make a transaction on Ethereum. That's not sustainable. Um, but but certainly interesting to see how much new attention these protocols are bringing. You know, I think it's certainly re-energizing a big part of crypto, re-energizing the Ethereum community. And I mean, we, we saw that with, you know, ETH running up, you know, a few days ago to $440 again, right? And, uh, you know, certainly having some spillover effects on the rest of the market. Um, so, so the next thing I want to hit on um, is something that we've done some research in. It's something that Bitwise has done research in. It's something that seemingly everybody at some point has done some research in, which is uh, exchange volume manipulation in crypto. And I think a lot of the research was done a couple of years ago. But what what trends have you seen in terms of, you know, potential, you know, uh, manipulative practices as it relates to, you know, things like order book spoofing and 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 you know potentially exchanges reporting fake trading volume, and and what types of data points are you looking to assess the the true liquidity of the market and and trying mm-hmm. to get around that that illicit activity. Yeah, and I mean, our stance at Kaiko is is more that we're transparent on what the data looks like, and we don't really take a judgment. Because let's face it, you're taking a judgment on whether you think this is legit or not. And our role is more to, because of our more enterprise focus, is more to really give a snapshot of what took place on the in the market. But the the funny thing about this is, yeah, Bitwise report. Um, which actually uh, used uh, some of our data and uh, that they're very interestingly presented to the SEC. And uh, they, they unraveled a, a lot of things that were clearly abnormal. Like when you would look at the distribution of trade sizes, so basically the amounts people were putting on, on the, and I think it was even in, in the trades and the transactions, it just looked like somebody putting random noise. It didn't look healthy. <laughs> So right, I mean, you'd expect to see average trades of a quarter of a bitcoin, a tenth of a bitcoin, a bitcoin, because humans are humans and they trade certain amounts. Exactly, you get this fractal behavior, and you actually also see that in the correlations, in the time correlations, uh, when you look at at the returns. But so the big question there is, okay, that that's outright abnormal. Like, how can you like? Is it uh, is the manipulator really taking risk? Is it a real trade that? actually was executed or is it just somebody writing fake bytes into a database and so that i think is getting less uh less and less of a concern because exchanges have also you know from the their reputation is at stake the difficult thing in terms of the criteria that you look at um is that 
people learn, right? So it's a, it's an ongoing game. If you make the criteria public, uh, people will learn to adapt and and satisfy and meet those criteria. Um, but generally, you can look at exchange reputation uh, and what country they their headquarters are, where they incorporated, um, what the correlation of their metrics are relative to the rest of the market. As in, you know, if they're not following the market and they're out of sync, well, potentially that they're not really, there's much price discovery going on on that exchange. Um, trade size distribution, as, as, as I mentioned, and it's clearly ongoing progress. And I, I think as the data infrastructure improves, as uh, the regulations, you know, start kicking it into the, the space, we'll see uh, a lot of change in that. Yeah. And I mean, another thing, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's right to take a, you know, what you guys are doing, which is taking a pretty hands off approach to this is, is just the fact that, you know, there, there can be markets where 90% of the trading activity is real, but, but, a, but a percentage of it is, you know, you know, potentially things like spoofing. Yeah. And to say that it's all fake, I think is just the wrong approach to this, right? Because there are markets that are definitely more liquid. You know, I think OKEX and Huobi were two good examples of that, which, where some research reports said, you know, hey, there, there's some things going on, going wrong, you know, on here. And, and potentially that's the case. But, you know, there's a lot going on, right? And those those markets are incredibly more liquid than other markets that may be 100%, you know, true trading activity mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And, and also maybe, you know, some, uh, is it that some of that trading, wh- where does it come from? Is it because some people are not paying fees and so they can actually place a ton of trades and not bear much risk? Um, it's, it's also whether the, that has teeth into, you know, risks when those, those trades are being placed. Yeah, certainly. And so, you know, I guess this kind of, you know, weeds into my next question, but what are the challenges with this, you know, uh, associated with accurately calculating market volume and what, and, and what are the challenges with running a market data business more broadly? So the, the first, uh, the first challenge is the, uh, especially, well, as in the recent past, the sheer number of exchanges, the variety of the the instruments and the, and the the coverage that you have, is it's going up all the time. And we actually started covering Uniswap uh, recently. And so as you can imagine, you know, the every time you add a new exchange or you add you you add a lot of new instruments, and those exchanges are also adding more and more instruments. Uh, on the derivative side, similarly, you get a lot of um, new contracts being traded. So it's a space that's growing very fast. Um, and the other question is, uh, how do you label those instruments? Uh, some exchanges might have a name for one crypto asset, other might have a different name. And it it's something that we're actually uh, looking into and working actively on to provide a robust way to identify crypto assets. Um, other thing that, you know, in, in that uh, and the same line of thought is, for example, an exchange gets acquired and then their name changes. Well, how do you input that into your database so that when somebody is looking for an asset? Uh, it's so that- funny. I mean, we have so many of these same challenges. It's just it's yeah. funny hearing from a different perspective. Yeah. I mean, like we have our own alias table where yeah. basically depending on the source, we manage all the aliases and match them. And then we'll hear from a client like, Omise Go is called OMG Network now. And like one thing says Omise Go, one thing says OMG Network, you know, ETHLAND renamed as Ave, and you just have all the, and yeah. it's, and we're going, I mean, we're, we're, you know, looking at maybe tens of sources. You guys are looking at hundreds of sources. So I can't even imagine how difficult that is. Yeah. And you have, you know, you have like BCH, you have BCHABC, you have, I mean, 
it's and and it's there is also some education on or even from an investor perspective how do you know all those cars, this correspondence this goes fast and a lot of that is just manual work that is not really easy to automate so getting a standard there is is a big pain point yeah no totally it's funny we i mean we have that we have that same issue with our data sets it's just like it's like it's like and then i mean you guys must have you know tokens being added every day right we see exchange listings every day on different things and some assets Mm -hmm. will even have the same ticker symbols so like how do you even build the database table to differentiate between the ticker symbols right and then like if somebody's calling your api for for a ticker and you have two tokens that have the same ticker like how do you differentiate so it's funny that you bring that up as as the biggest challenge that's something that we've certainly faced as well and the other thing is there's on the lack of standards is you you know we're pushing the envelope on what you can what you're able to calculate live and on a bespoke basis for example our direct exchange rate endpoints you can say what markets you want included in the average and then you can get a vwap uh, volume volume weighted average price um, over time of on using as the the markets that you chose because they're relevant to you it's 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 uh, this lack of normalization is can be very painful from a market data perspective the other thing is back to the trust issue as i said our stance is to really provide a clear instantaneous snapshot of what was shown to the market by the exchange at a given time. So we capture that and then we do that at the most granular level. So it's a lot harder for for the exchanges to manipulate that data than just when you're getting simple candles. And the other thing is because we capture that right at the time it came out of the exchange, um, well, if you get it from us six months later, you know that it's actually what was shown at the time. And so this is the information based on which um, investors made their decisions. And so what are the what are the next steps for Keiko? I mean, certainly the direct exchange rate is, you know, I think something you guys worked on more recently. And I mean, you know, for anybody listening who, who doesn't, you know, interact with APIs and with data science and all of that, like it is really difficult to do, like to to in real time, say, I want to look at these 17 markets and I want a price that, by the way, updates every second, right? Or every few seconds across those different markets is something that's incredibly complicated, especially when, you know, you have markets that, you know, one is a USDT pair, one is a Bitcoin pair, one is a USDC pair, right? And and, and doing all that in real time. Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly hats off to you guys, because that is not something that's easy to do. Um, but but so what are the next steps for Keiko? Uh, you know, where do you think the firm's going to be in the next three to five years? Yeah, and just one side note on on this, I think you know what our engineering team has been doing also on the order book side is remarkable. Uh, you know, the ability that you, that you can actually go through thousands and thousands of order book snapshots and instant or very fast get a, get the uh, average order book depth or calculate slippage metrics based on the the level of slippage that you want or the the order size that you want and you don't have to go through the hustle of downloading thousands and thousands of snapshots um, as far as the uh, the the next steps for Keiko uh, so on my side is strengthening our US presence and and being there, you know, to build this institutional infrastructure, giving uh, institutional investors with the right means to make good decisions and build this base. Also, develop our Asian presence. We have someone uh, who um, we have an office also in Asia, although the rest uh, of the company is based in Paris. 
Um, the other things we're working on is, you know, in increasing our constantly increasing our data coverage. Uh, I mentioned we added Uniswap, but like, how can we do, include more DEXs, decentralized exchanges, uh, cover, you know, security tokens, on-chain data, and uh, improve, continue consistently in improving our connectivity, the latency of the data feeds that we offer as more um, higher frequency trading comes into the space and, uh, and expand the ways we can deliver all that data uh, to our clients. When are we getting coinmarketkaiko.com? <laughs> <laughs> well, for now, we've been focusing more on really the infrastructure and providing and reliable feeds and making, you know, getting all that very granular data and calculating metrics, higher level metrics that you can use easily on top of that data. So have you guys done any work in the past or actively doing any work or thinking about in the future, doing work on building indices and, you know, using your market data to power indices? Or is that that's thing that clients are already doing? So for, for now, we are providing, we're actually providing uh, data with, um, uh, to uh, Compass, FT and, and CoinShares, where we have this, uh, we launched this um, uh, crypto, uh, crypto gold index that they worked on. Uh, the funny thing is actually this came out literally of the same room where I did my PhD at Imperial, um, at Imperial College in London. And the, so the Aero office got converted into a blockchain research lab. And, um, and they, so they created this index that matches and well, that uses uh, crypto and gold to try and optimize the uh, volatility that you get from those. So the I, I think the index space is a fascinating space, and the uh, uh, there there's a lot of potential in there, especially in the DeFi space right now. You know, how do you keep track of uh, of what's going on without just sticking to one uh, to one instrument? So yeah, it's definitely something we're looking at. And did I see you guys working with an oracle, or is that something you guys are doing? Uh, yeah, yeah, we work we work with a couple of uh, our projects, and there is more to come in in that space. Well, because we also, you know, the it's really about getting the data infrastructure when you think of, of an Oracle. And so we work with Chainlink. Uh, we also ha have the, this project called uh, iExec, where we do what we know uh, how to what how to do, which is provide data. And when you think of the uh, potential of smart contracts, it's really important to have that good source of data. So that's where we and come in. And to, to anybody who's been holding Chainlink for a while, who saw it run up to, to 20, 20 bucks, you can thank uh, Sasha and the Keiko partnership for being a, being a small part of that big run that you guys got in on. <laughs> yes, so, uh, it's an exciting project. Then I won't speak about price though, but uh, <laughs> but it's 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 solving a, a big issue. And there's you know there are other projects worth mentioning. I think uh, Uma, the uh, Universal Market Access, they're doing also very interesting things on the Oracle space. And so one question that we ask all our guests is how they define fundamentals for crypto, right? This is a market that's void of, you know, earning statements and revenues and dividends and earnings calls. So how do we assess the true value of a digital asset? And does that depend on the specific asset? Well, to me, crypto is a VC game, right? You know, it's, um, it's you're banking on network effects. And you're very early stage, so you're you're just hoping. You know, for the VC by by VC game, I mean, you don't care if you invest in a hundred startups. You don't care even if 
even if 99 of them go bankrupt, if the top if the top one goes a thousand x, you still made 900. You still made 900 on your investment, right? So that's that's at, at, at the core of what's going on in crypto. It's everything is very early stage. You don't know uh, how the projects are going to grow, and because of all the network effects that are being leveraged, the ones that are going to win this this uh, race are going to go multiple. Uh, way higher than than what it is right now. So, it's, it's there. Are many people are trying to take this strategy of spray and pray. Um, so, so what do you think makes a crypto a winner? Right, like what you know, we've seen Chainlink as a winner, and to me, a lot of the reason that happened was you know one the Link Army, right, and this this group of people, you know, kind of exploding all over social networks, promoting Chainlink through you know basically Pepe the Frog memes for the last three years, you know, combined with, you know, all these partnerships and partnership announcements. I mean, you know, surely you can spray and pray, but what is, what is going to be the reason that one of these assets wins over another? Do you think it's going to come down to technology or do you think it just comes down to, you know, uh, you know, community behind so, these projects? I, I think from a VC perspective, it comes, it comes from the, you know, the early stage fundamentals, like, what is the team? What did, where does the team come from? What is the market size? What is the founder vision? Why are they trying to solve this problem? What What is this problem actually? And how are they planning to solve it? What does it entail in terms of their vision of the world that is going to shift so that you can capture all those network effects? I think that's, that's what's very important. But as the space grows and matures, obviously companies will get cash flows. We're starting to see this with exchanges. Uh, and and actually what, what you do with the... Uh, the data you collect also will help a lot uh, getting those valuations right. And I think there is unprecedented ways to get new data uh, on the on-chain world and, you know, not have to wait for quarterly uh, quarterly announcement, which is actually very exciting to in the when it comes to valuing those projects. I think that's something that's, uh, you know, certainly interesting. Um, and I think, you know, you you coming out and saying, you know, the VC approach, something I haven't thought about, but I think something that's interesting as well is, you know, the fact that VCs do have a lot of power over this market, right? And we, we, we're, we're seeing that constantly, right? Where the, the tokens that are starting to get listed on these exchanges are the tokens that Coinbase has invested in early, right? That Binance has invested in early, right? And I think that there's there's some level of, of surely the, you know, VCs are vetting what they view as the fundamentals of these assets, um, and because these VCs hold some level of power within this market, they can also in, in some manner determine what becomes, at least in the short term, the winner or the loser, uh, mm-hmm. because we've seen, you know, exchange listings bring, you know, very fast short term price movement to an asset. But they also bring you know longer term liquidity to an asset because you're opening up that that you know, you're opening up that coin to to potentially millions of new users where there could be a coin that had a lot of great technology. But if it's not listed on a more liquid exchange, it's, it's just not available to those markets. Yeah, I mean, w- one caveat uh, relative to VC is uh, VC is a private investment, so you don't have the liquidity that you get uh, in the in the crypto world. Uh, maybe, well, you 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 have you know something that is um, sort of public, but you don't have. It's true, you don't have the same uh, ability to short those those uh, those coins. <laughs> it's quite hard to short coins in the um, in the crypto space. But it's it's something that is much more liquid, and you don't have this uh, private aspect that you get in venture capital. 
Right. You don't have to deal with the secondary share trading, right? You can liquidate your asset whenever you want. Yeah. Um, but, but relative to the, the contacts that the VC bring and the VCs bring, etc. Yes, because you're harvesting network effects. So it's also about, you know, they about who who you know about how what your go to market strategy is and how people are going to hear about you. And it's it's a lot of getting many eyeballs looking at at the project. And, you know, this brings not only customers, but also talents to your company. So in the end, it matters a lot because even if you if you don't have as many talents or uh, in the beginning relative to other projects, eventually that all that attention that you get will get you there. And so what worries you most about crypto? Uh, you know, what keeps you up at night? You know, what do you think the biggest risks for this space are? Well, right now, I think there's a lot of games going on in the DeFi space, and it's all games to increase leverage. And, you know, it's, it's many risks that are not well understood. And I think it's it's worrying and uh, not just for for the um, for people who are going to obviously or who are bound to lose money uh, by doing that, but also for the uh, the infrastructure again because we don't want to have a huge crash that's going to tarnish the reputation of of decentralized finance um i think there's still a pervasive lack of due diligence in many of those projects because do, people don't have the time to do the due diligence and go into this project and see what there, there's so much fomo and so much pressure to you know get in as early as possible and when you think about what happened with Yam, it's crazy to me to see that hundreds of millions of dollars were poured into a protocol that had not been audited. And you know, well, I think you said it best earlier. It's greed, right? <laughs> you know, we still yeah. have a greed problem. Yeah, but we somehow the you know the the infrastructure is allowing that to happen, and you know, founders are doing the the, the job of of putting the warnings. Even in technical white papers, you see warnings saying. Don't put too much money into this. This has. But, but who, how many people read technical white papers, right? Um, well, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the, the point is if you read a technical white paper, supposedly you know more. So you shouldn't need to have this disclaimer on a technical white paper. Right. That's true. That's true. But I think there's also just a, a level of, right, you know, when, when, you know, the market is booming, right? And, and, you know, these liquid small cap cryptocurrencies will tend to outperform um, because of the lack of liquidity, right? Because people, you know, you know, turning Bitcoin profits or moving their Bitcoin or their Ethereum profits into to these smaller cap coins. And a lot of times I think these people are just looking for for short term returns rather than having yeah. some sort of long term um, bull, bull thesis on, you know, the, the token actually accruing some some sort of real value as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even when you look at the 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 whole stock market right now, I mean, markets are. Uh, when you look at the disconnect that there is between, well, well I thought stocks I mean, only go up now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you're you're right. There's a, you know, it's like it's like in physics, you know, there's no more, <laughs> nothing. Uh, Newton's law is dead. It's uh, yeah, exactly. E equals M C square the value of the shitty shitty uh, stock that you're buying. 
but it because you know people are humans and especially in crypto there's a lot of correlation in the thoughts because there are all those and i and i don't think that the lack of social interaction we have right now is helping with those correlations people think alike and so when there when suddenly there is uh, a shift or something moves well everybody is going in the same direction Right. And I think, I think a lot of times people don't want to necessarily think for themselves. They want to be told what to do. And when they see influencers and others in the space, you know, very quickly, like, you know, Arthur Hayes, for example, you know, is basically doing a shit coin of the day that he's investing in. Right. You know, people follow that. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, with Dave Portnoy, you know, you know, uh, you know, shilling Chainlink in, in Orchid. Uh, I don't know where he came up with that one from, but, um, you know, I think there's certainly, uh, you know, some, some FOMO that exists, but also I think a little bit of follow the leader. Yeah. Well, and it's, uh, you know, I won't name, uh, <laughs> but uh, even in the stock market, it's when you look at what happened recently, it's this, you can, you can, it's not just specific to crypto. No, no, I think you're right. I mean, with the Robin Hood rally, you know, when we saw Hertz go up by what, like 400% in a day, and now it's yeah. trading up below what it was trading before. And then Hertz, you know, just like people in crypto tried to, you know, with, with you know, whatever that blockchain or whatever that Long Island Ice Tea, you know, changing themselves to long blockchain corp, right? And, and just taking advantage of the situation. And, and, you know, their stock skyrocketed a few years ago to, you know, Kodak did the same thing, announcing that they were doing a blockchain miner, right? And, or uh, creating a Bitcoin miner, right? Just to skyrocket their share price. And we saw that with Hertz, you know, announcing that they were going to raise $100 million in capital and the SEC saying, haha, not so fast. Um, so I think, you know, you're, you're certainly right on that regard. So in, in the context of, of regulation, um, you know, when, when weighing rather whether or not to approve a crypto ETF, you know, it, it seems like the, the SEC has put a lot of weight. And I, I think more specifically, Jay Clayton, who is now, you know, no longer going to be at the SEC. So, you know, this, this could, you know, lead to a, a paradigm shift there, but they, they've put a lot of weight into the trustworthiness of, of crypto markets and these exchanges that these assets are trading on. So what are your thoughts on the current state of digital asset markets, you know, the infrastructure that exists now. And I know you mentioned with a specific exchange that infrastructure, you know, is related to order matching was significantly improving, you know, as well as the liquidity. I mean, do you think that, you know, at this point, we're ready for an ETF? I think it's, it's a tough question. And honestly, I haven't been in finance for uh, so long of a time. Um, and let's be honest, you know, I, do, I don't have enough experience to judge on this. And, and um, I'm sure there are very bright minds at the SEC and at the uh, at the CFTC who are looking into this and who have who know who have a better understanding of how markets behave. Um, for a lot of things, it's very. I think the crypto space has been reinventing the wheel of things that were known in traditional markets. Uh, now on the crypto on the uh, ETF side, it, it does feel a bit like um, it's a it's the opposite that's going on and that we're actually being more rigorous than what is being done in, in traditional finance. And so I, I think that the, the, the need for an ETF is huge. It's, it's really big. And is it because, I don't know, if is it because the uh, would the, the, the trading activity not be able to handle such large volumes if suddenly you got a lot of volumes going into the space? Uh, there, there was still the, the custody issue you know that that is the, that was a big pain point. Then that now where you see big players getting into it, like Fidelity, 
Um, and I think I think there's also certainly you know a big argument to be made around why we need the ETF, right? The fact that you know right now retail investors are paying massive premiums mm-hmm. to buy Bitcoin in their IRA RIAs through you know you know things like GBTC and different instruments, right? Yep. And you know potentially it's a safer way. Um, to, to help people get exposure to the asset class and, and a way for regulators to more clearly monitor these markets that I think that than, than they were in the past. But something interesting for me to see is we really haven't seen the Bitcoin ETF um, discussion happening these last few months as Bitcoin's price has, has risen up to the eleven twelve thousand dollar range, which is you know something that's quite interesting to me. I mean, you know, the Winklevoss twins have been trying to get an ETF since twenty fifteen, and and Bitwise, yep. and you know certainly uh, you know the the Wilshire Phoenix one, and and, and other uh, and and Van Eck, and I mean, there's so many of these you know ETF proposals that have been out there, and it's it's kind of interesting to see to me to see that you know we've 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 been seeing you know such an improvement to infrastructure. Uh, into trading, into liquidity, and, and real institutions moving into the space, but I haven't seen that yet. Seen that kind of re-enter, en- you know, new energy into getting an ETF approved. Yeah, and there's still some work to be done on really understanding the price discovery mechanisms and how those systems are impacted. Making and uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, ongoing work, and you know, not just about ETFs. You mentioned indices, and I think broadly, I'd like to think of a bigger picture where uh, that's what's fascinating with the decentralized and well with the automated crypto infrastructure where you could actually really provide means to personalize financial products and provide bespoke indices that not just adjust to your goals your your risk tolerance or your financial capital but you can also start taking into account maybe your human capital and then you can get other data points that are tied to that and i think that will spur a lot of financial innovation that is good and can you can you expand on that on the human capital point you just made yeah and so that actually um stems from uh, one of the course of the one of the fathers of a uh, of finance, uh, um, namely uh, Robert Merton, who uh, um, t- I took one of his courses at MIT, and the um, what he taught in that course, uh, in part, was uh, well, modern po- portfolio t- theory tells you, okay, the way you allocate your assets um, should be done in a way to optimize a risk reward trade off, right? The you know the typical optimal asset allocation, but now, you're not just investing financial capital, and you're also investing human capital. You know, if, if you are working full-time in the crypto space, to some extent, your future cash flows, your, your uh, salary uh, is exposed to, this, uh, to the growth of that space. So how do you get that into account in your portfolio that, of, of assets that you're holding? And take into account that you do have a risk that comes from your human capital. So that's really, really what it is about. It's not just looking at your financial assets, but in more broadly, anything that has value and that you are investing. Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's a really interesting point. I mean, and, you know. You know, a lot of people ask, "Well, I, I don't actively trade crypto, and I, I I do hold Bitcoin, right? And I, I hold long term. And you know, part of it is because I, you know, we're a data provider, and I, I don't think we necessarily need to trade. But also, I'm working full time in the space, right? And that that like my portfolio is mostly allocated to crypto, given that you know my majority holding is my share in my own company. So I think that's certainly an interesting way to to think about portfolio allocation. Yeah. So. 
you know, two two quick final questions. The first is, what has you most excited about crypto right now? Oh, right now, uh, uh, there was recently a, uh, an announcement that uh, the uh, MIT Digital Currency Initiative was working on the uh, CBDC uh, for for a US dollar CBDC. I think that's tremendously exciting, and uh, uh, there's a great person working on this. Uh, his name is James Lovejoy. Uh, so I think that's very exciting to finally see this happen. I remember the first time I heard about CBDCs was in 2017, I think. The chief banker of the uh, of the Bank of England uh, gave a talk uh, at Imperial College, and and it was clearly early, and they didn't. I think the uh, they have improved a lot on refining the uh, the role they can play, and I do hope that. Uh, central banks will have a role to play in this ecosystem. And so if you hadn't gone into finance, and I guess, you know, we had this conversation earlier, but do, do you think you'd be in aerospace? What would you be doing today? Um, or what rather, what's next for Sasha after crypto? <laughs> um, I think most likely I would be working on AI solutions for engineers, um, you know, to improve our ability to design complex products uh, that will shape our future. It's it's uh, I've always liked complex problems. It's uh, so most likely yeah, in the AI space, or perhaps I would have been doing fundamental research on complex systems, and uh, you know the human quest for universality is uh, is also a good driver. But when you think about it, modern finance is what precisely what enabled our technological revolution. And crypto nicely says that this at this intersection between finance, data, automation, human behavior, social networks. So, in a sense, you know, uh, I'll see where it where it leads me, but it's uh, I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating journey. Yeah, well, though this was awesome, Sasha. I mean, you you are a uh, you are full of knowledge, certainly, and uh, you know, appreciate you having having you on. So, where can people find out uh, more about you and and about the company? Thanks, Josh. Yeah, I had a, a great time uh, uh, discussing this with you. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at SGHEB. Uh, also, you can subscribe to our weekly research newsletter, follow our blog at uh, blog.kaiko.com. And we have um, an interesting uh, interactive fact sheet where you can get the latest liquidity metrics on you know, this slippage that we mentioned, asset correlations, what the, vol- the volatility compares to other markets and much more information on the market structure. All right, great. Thanks Thanks so much for, uh, for coming on and ho- hope to have you on again soon. Pleasure.